Now, will you notice here what this man Habakkuk does? Chapter 2, and we have here in chapter 2 the perception of the prophet, or I put it perspicuity of the prophet. That sounds, you know, much bigger and better, so I have put that in my notes, but it's really the perception of the prophet. Before it was perplexity. Now, will you notice the prophet now has learned that God has an answer. He answered him on the first question. And Habakkuk just didn't think that there could be an answer for that. But he found out that there was an answer. But now this question, which is a bigger one, he recognizes that God has an answer for it. But it's a question. And my point is that if you have a question, don't smother it in some pious phraseology. We have so much of that type of thing in fundamental circles today. You hear people say, oh, I trust the Lord. Well, you're not trusting him. You're questioning him every step of the way. If you question him, there's no sin in questioning the Lord. Just go and tell him you don't understand. And that's what this man Habakkuk did. Now he's learned that God has an answer. And chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set myself upon the tower, and I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. That's a wonderful verse of Scripture. He says, I'm going to the watchtower and wait. And when he said, I'm going to watchtower, he didn't mean he was going to read a magazine. He meant that he was going to the watchtower and that is a figure of speech that you find in several of the prophets. You find it, for instance, in Ezekiel. You remember, it was watchman, what of the night? And the prophet was the watchman that was to prophesy to the nation. And God says, I'll hold him responsible. The watchman is the one that watches during the night. And if he is a faithful watchman, the city is safe. But if he should betray the city, or he not sound the alarm when the enemy came, then, may I say, the city is in deep trouble. And so this man now says, hey, he's God's prophet, I'm going to the watchtower. And that's the place where you watch. That's the place where you're on the lookout for a message. Now he says here, I will watch to see what he'll say unto me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. Now, he says this, I'm going to the watchtower and I'm going to wait. I'm going to be very patient. I'm going to wait because I know that he has an answer. I don't know what the answer is right now, but he has an answer and he'll give me that answer in time. And so I will go and patiently wait upon him. And therefore, we have here this very marvelous verse. And I want to change something a little. He says, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, very candidly, reprove is not just quite the word for it, because he didn't expect God to reprove him at all. He felt that God would give him the right answer, and then he would understand and not have a question. That is the 
fault here. It's not that God's going to rebuke him and, shall I use the common colloquialism, ball him out because he didn't trust God. No, he won't do that. God will give him the answer. And that will be forthcoming and he will wait and delay, actually. And the reason God doesn't move immediately to tell him is because God moves slowly in all that he does and all that he undertakes. And he intends to give an answer, but it's going to come in God's own time. You know, we're the ones in a hurry. And there are several expressions that we use today that actually, that's not scriptural at all. For instance, I hear this, the soon coming of Christ. Now, you show me in the Bible where that is. I haven't found it. I don't find that. Now, somebody's going to send in, Behold, I come quickly. Now, that's in the first part of Revelation. Now, he didn't say I'm coming soon because if he meant that, then soon it's been 1,900 years. He didn't mean that. He says quickly that the things that are mentioned in Revelation that will bring him to this earth are going to happen quickly. And that is something that's happened in our day that is terrific. Time magazine covered the ten great crisis events that took place in ten years. Well, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the seven last years before Christ comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. The thing that will introduce the seven years will be the rapture of the church. When it leaves, then I tell you, like a trip hammer, it's going to be one blow right after another. And there'll be more than ten events take place in ten, in seven years. It'll be one after the other. So that the Bible doesn't teach the soon coming. It teaches the imminent coming of Christ. And then there's another expression that I hear today, and I've used the other, the soon coming, but I've never used this one. If the Lord delays his coming. And sometimes you hear some pious brother says, now, if the Lord delays his coming, I've got news for that brother. The Lord's not going to delay his coming. He's going to come on schedule, his schedule, not mine or yours, but on his schedule. And he will not delay. But we must remember the Lord is long-suffering. He's patient. He's not willing for any to perish. There's going to be a company of people down yonder in Babylon that God's going to save. So this period that the children of Israel be in captivity 70 years is going to be a glorious time for God. He's going to reach the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, if you please. So we have here a very wonderful verse, you see. Now, what Habakkuk says, I'm going to retire now to my watchtower. I don't have the answer but I'm going to get an answer from God. May I say to you, you remember that Paul said, speaking of death, that is, of these bodies of ours that are going to be put in the grave, and then the day will come when he'll come and raise up the bodies. But in the meantime, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. And when we leave these bodies, we're going to be at home with the Lord. But the Lord's moving rather slowly. So Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. 
And so today we walk by faith. Do you have any questions that have not been answered? If you don't, I do. I have several questions that I do not have the answer for. But I have learned like I did as a little boy. And my dad picked me up and took me to the cellar. And the Lord today moves me and things happen to me. And I wonder why in the world. But I've learned this. He's got the answer. And someday he'll give it to me. And that first little girl of mine that he took, I don't know why he took her, but he took her. And someday he's going to tell me. So I've been walking now quite a few years by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And this is the day for us to trust him, you see. That's the important thing. Now let me move on down here. Verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. This is something he says, I want the people in the 20th century, and especially that fellow McGee, he seems to have a few questions himself, write it so that he'll have an answer from me during these days when he's walking by faith. And I think he had you in mind also. Write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. Now, we get that one twisted out. We have turned that around and say, let him that reads run. But that's not what he says. He says that he may run that readeth it. In other words, you need to have a road map with you. You need to know where you're going. You need to know a great deal about the way that he may run that readeth it that it's not he that runneth may read, but rather that he may run that readeth it. That is, he must be the messenger of this vision to give out. And I don't like to say this. It doesn't sound good, but I think somebody needs to say it. There are great many today that are preaching and are trying to preach and trying to teach that need to do a little more reading before they start running. They need preparation. I remember when I wanted to enter the ministry, I wanted to miss part of my college training, and I wanted to miss my seminary and go immediately to Bible school and start out. I thank God for a marvelous, wonderful pastor that told me, says, take all the training that you can get. Learn to read before you start running, before you begin to witness be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, he says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. And that's important to know. At the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. You can depend on God to have the answer for you and me someday to all of our questions. That's going to be a great day. So many people talk about the wonders of heaven and golden streets. Well, I'm not going to be a street inspector. I don't expect to even take a good look at those golden streets. But I expect to get a lot of answers to a great many of the questions that puzzle men today. But in the meantime, he tells me that I'm to walk by faith. Now, we put in it verse 4. This is the most important verse in Scripture. 
probably I should tone that down a little and say it's one of the most important verses in Scripture. It's the key to the little book of Habakkuk. And we also find that it is quoted in three of the great doctrinal epistles that we have in the New Testament and actually gives the key for those epistles. Therefore, I think that I should read verse 4 to you. Behold, his soul that is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, the thing that many have attempted to do is to try to say here in verse 4 that the faithful, the faithful one, there's been many ways of attempting to sidestep the tremendous impact of this verse here. And actually, as the New Schofield Bible puts it, this verse here gives the very central theme of the Bible, the very purpose of life and death is presented to us here. And the two ways that are open up to mankind are given to us here. And I have in my notes several things concerning this verse that we'd like to call attention to. He mentions the two groups of individuals that are in the world. Now, actually, mankind before God is divided into two groups, the lost and the saved. Those that have trusted God, that have believed God, and those that have not believed God. Or, putting it in commonplace division, we say that the race is divided between the saints and the ain'ts. And that makes a pretty sharp division for them also. Now, notice what he says here, that you're to go Habakkuk to your watchtower, and you are to wait there for the message. And this will be God's great message to you. It will explain his dealings with individuals, It will explain his dealings with nations. This is a great principle he puts down. And it's actually an axiom of the Bible. You know, when you study geometry, they put down certain axioms that you accept, and they don't attempt to prove them. They just say, for instance, a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Now, that can be proved by a geometrical problem. But that is an axiom. They always would let me make that statement, and I didn't have to prove it. I had to prove everything else, but not that one. And there are certain statements in Scripture that are great axioms. Now, here is one of them. And will you listen to it? Behold, his soul that is lifted up is not upright in him. That's one group of people. That's the proud. That is those that are working out their own salvation. Or they're not working it out. They are just living for today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And they feel like this life is all, and they have no purpose. They have no goal in life at all. 
And it is presented that way here. Behold his soul that's lifted up. It's not upright in him. He's wrong. He's on the wrong trail. He's going down the wrong pathway. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And these two groups of humanity, one group here, it's the lifted up soul or the puffed up soul. You meet folk like that. Many of them are in churches today. Puffed oats or puffed wheat or puffed something. They are like a balloon. They are full of hot air. They're just blown up, lifted up with pride. And they are flowing down like a river, down to the sea of destruction. And they meander along in their way, picking daisies as they go, and they are taking it easy. That's their expression. Take it easy. Don't worry about anything. But as they move down this slow-moving meander river, they're finally going to come to the sea of destruction. What about them? Well, that's their end. The Scripture never enlarges upon the loss, if you've noted. The Lord Jesus, you remember, told about the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, and both of them died. Now, Lord followed them through. The rich man, he went to his place. Said of Judas, he went to his place when he died. You can go through life just like that. And the end is destruction. The end is a lost eternity. You can take that. Now, the other group is saved by faith, and they are flowing down the river of life toward the city of God and full knowledge. For then shall we know, even as we are known. We don't have all the answers right now, but we walk today by faith. Now, between the moment of salvation and the then, the one saved by faith will walk by faith. Then shall we know. But now we've been saved by faith. We're going to walk by faith. He may not have the answer now, but we're going to have the answer someday. And so we have here the puffed up soul must be judged for certain glaring sins that are going to be mentioned here, actually, in five woes that are given to us here. We're going to come to this parable of the prophet, now beginning here with verse 5. But now let's stay with this other for just a few moments here. Because this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is quoted in the epistle to the Romans, in the epistle to the Galatians, and the epistle to the Hebrews, and it's the key of all three of these epistles. Now, first of all, Let's look at Romans. In Romans, the first chapter, right at the very beginning, and I'll read it, verse 16. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
Now, the emphasis in the epistle to the Romans is upon justification by faith, upon salvation. And you would read it like this, the just, the one that have been justified by faith, they shall live by faith. That is the great message of the epistle to the Romans. Now, when you come over to the epistle to the Galatians, you find that this has been quoted in this epistle in chapter 3, verse 11. But that no man is justified by law in the sight of God, it's evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now, again, Habakkuk is quoted. Now, the emphasis is a little different here because you find moving back into chapter 2, verse 20, this man, Paul, says here, I'm crucified with Christ. When was he crucified with Christ? When Christ died, 1,900 years ago. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the emphasis in Romans was upon justification by faith, salvation by faith. Now, the emphasis in this epistle is on faith, and not only faith that saves, but a faith that you live by through this life. That is the emphasis there. Now, we go to the epistle to the Hebrews, and in Hebrews 10, 38, I read this, Now the just shall live by faith. Now here the writer to the Hebrews is quoting from this, and he says, The just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And here the emphasis is upon live. Now, take those tremendous words, The just shall live by faith. Now, Paul in Romans puts the emphasis upon the just, justification by faith for salvation. Paul in Galatians puts the emphasis upon the last word, the just shall live by faith. And the emphasis is upon faith. We don't live by law. Paul says, we see you're not justified by law, but we read the just shall live by faith. Now, when you come to Hebrews, you have the emphasis here put upon live. And after he quotes this verse and in chapter 10, 38, here in Hebrews, he gives us the 11th chapter of Hebrews of man who live by faith, and the emphasis is upon living. So that the three great emphases are given in the three great doctrinal epistles. Therefore... This man, Habakkuk, when he comes here to this second chapter, he's given this verse. And Habakkuk looked into the future, and his question is, why? Now, we look back on history, not to the future and prophecy, but we see the answer to Habakkuk. God sent his own people into captivity. He did that. It served a purpose, a greater purpose. And it enabled him to bring the Savior into the world in the fullness of time. Now, when Paul was in Antioch of Pisidia, 
he preached what I've always considered one of the greatest sermons that he ever preached. And in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts at verse 37, and let me begin reading there because this is very important. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets, Behold, ye despise us, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And therefore, Paul shuts them in. The one way to God, that is by faith, he says. This is the only way. And the message is the message that Christ died for our sins, According to the Scriptures, he was buried, he rose again the third day. Now, what do you do with it? You accept him as your Savior. You trust him, and you walk by faith and not by law. Oh, we've got so many today that are putting us back under not only the Ten Commandments, but they're putting us back under a little legal system that they've worked out, and their rules and regulations for the family and for the husband and for the wife and all that. My friend today, may I say to you, if you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, then you love him. And his question to you is, if you are his child, do you love me? Now, if you love him, that's going to work out the problems. It's going to enable you to walk in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you'll be filled with the Spirit. You'll have joy in your heart. It'll make you a better husband, make you a better wife, make you a better child, make you a better workman where you work, make you a better man wherever you are or whoever you are. You walk by faith, and one of these days we'll walk right into his presence, and we'll be in his presence forevermore. May I say to you, the important thing then will be love, you see, because faith will now have eventuated into actually sight, and we see him. How wonderful this is here. And the important thing that this man, you see, had to say is, I've gone to my watchtower, and I'm going to wait. I'm trusting the one who does have the answer. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of them that seek him. And will you notice, the just shall live by faith. My friend, today, God is asking you to come to him. And the only way you can come to him is to come by faith. Now, what about the other crowd? Well, he says here, his soul's not upright in him. He's wrong. Now he's going to spell out in five woes here. And the first woe we have at verse 5, and it is drunkenness. And this is the 
way, God's going to judge Babylon. And then in verse 9, we see the second woe. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. Covetousness was the great sin of Babylon as well as drunkenness. And then verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. May I say to you how horrible they treated the people that they took into captivity. That was the thing that they were noted for, their brutality. And read the 137th Psalm, and you'll see how they had treated the children of Israel. And then we come to the fifth one. It's down in verse 19. Woe to him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone arise. And idolatry was the great sin of Babylon also. They had five great sins. You see, pride causes man to go off in these directions. It leads him to drink. It leads him to be covetous. He wants more. It leads him to be cruel and brutal, actually, in his dealings, and it also makes him an idolater. Now, somebody's going to say, but there's nobody worshiping idols today in our country. My friend, there are great many folk that are worshiping idols today in this country. I was in Dallas, Texas, and I noticed it's there the same as it is here. On the freeway early of a morning, it was bumper to bumper. Where are the people going? Why, they were going into the temple of trade, the marts of trade, to the marketplace. And they were going there to give themselves for what? They were worshiping the almighty dollar. How many men and women today are worshiping sex? How many today are worshiping pleasure? How many today are worshiping, well, right now, everybody seems to be trying to become an actor or an actress of some sort or another. Believe me, they sure worship here in Hollywood. They worship this sort of thing. And many a woman gives her body. Many a man gives his life and his honor. May I say to you, my friend, what happens Well, a soul that's lifted up, filled with pride, puffed up. This is the direction you're going. This will be your outcome. This will be your end. A lost eternity. The just shall live by faith. And we can afford to wait today. Let's just stay in our watchtower. God's got the answer. I look about me today at a world that I actually think it's gone crazy. And people say, my, well, what's the outcome? I don't know what the outcome is. I think a revolution is ahead. I believe that terrible days are ahead. I don't mean to be a gloom caster, but what other conclusion can you come to as you look around you today? And you say, well, you must be a pessimist. I'm not, friends. I'm an optimist. Glorious day is coming. Why, we walk by faith today. We're not walking by sight. I look around me at these things. They're going to change some of these days. We've got one that's going to be the changer. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. And believe me, he's going to change things. But before he comes, he's going to take his church out of the world. 
When? I don't know. I'm just here in the watchtower looking out, walking by faith. Are you walking by faith today, friends? makes all the difference in the world. It'll not only change your life, it'll change your home, change your entire outlook. Now, we spent most of the hour on verse 4. And I'm really not through with it. I guess we'll never be through with it exactly because it runs through the Scripture and it puts down the great scriptural basis of God's salvation. It begins, Behold, his soul that is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Now, it presents to us here two streams of humanity. Or, this is the verse that divides humanity into two great groups. One group are living by their own sufficiency, their own strength, their own ability. They walk by pride. They feel like that they are acceptable to God. In fact, some of these folk give me the impression that God's really lucky to get them, and he doesn't really have them, but they think that he does. And this is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. It's a way of destruction. And here he just leaves it as the man lifted up in pride, his soul's not upright in him, and it leads to destruction. The Lord Jesus Christ presented these two ways, and the other is the way of faith. The just shall live. He receives life by faith. He walks by faith, and he moves into eternity by faith, and not by his own ability, but on the strength and ability of another. Now, the Lord Jesus put it like this, "'Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction.'" Our Lord really put the climax on it, and he says, "'And many there be which go in thereat.'" Now, this is called the broad way, but if you'll notice, what you have here is a funnel. It's wide where you enter but you come out in just one place. That's destruction. And that's the story of the sinner. It's like going down a canyon. And here in the West, I've been hunting in quite a few places where you start up a very wide spot in the desert, and you begin to move up into a canyon. And as you move up into the canyon, it gradually gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And that is the picture here. It's wide at the entrance, but it narrows down to destruction. Now, the Lord Jesus, though, said concerning the other, because straight is the gate. That gate is very narrow. It's narrow in the sense that the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, it's narrowed down to him, to a person. He is the way. He doesn't show the way. He is the way. You either have Christ or you don't have him. You either trust him or you don't trust him. It hasn't anything in the world to do with going through a ceremony or making pledges or going forward in a meeting 
or that type of thing at all, or even joining the church, it has to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the reason it's a pretty straight gate, by the way. God has the world shut up to a cross, and he says, what will you do with my son that died for you? And straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, wait just a minute. This now is an inverted funnel. You go in at the small end. Christ is the way. But as you enter, it doesn't narrow down. It widens out. The Lord Jesus said, I've come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly, wide, and the liberty that there is for the Savior. Take today two classes of folk. Here is a man, and we're coming to that in this particular passage of Scripture. He begins to take a drink. He says to his Christian friend, "Ah, you're narrow-minded. You're quite limited. I can drink or I can let it alone. That's what my dad used to say. My dad died when I was 14. He was a heavy drinker. Well, he was never an alcoholic, but he sure did drink heavily. And as a boy, I talked to him and I asked him why he didn't give it up. He said, son, I can give it up any time I want to. You know what his problem was? He didn't want to. That was it. And had he lived, I'm confident the day would have come when he'd found himself in a pretty narrow canyon and he would have only one alternative, and that's to take another drink. Now, the Christian that was so narrow, he went in a narrow gate. He trusts Christ as his Savior. But did he get to the place where it narrowed down? No, he's living, friends. If you really want to live, you come to Christ. That is the wonder and the glory of this verse here. No wonder the foundation under Romans, it's the foundation under Galatians, it's the foundation under the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, this is the thing that God had said to this man. He said to Habakkuk, you have certain questions, and I've answered them for you. Hasn't been quite satisfactory to you, but you can trust me. You can trust me that what I've done in the past has been right. What I'm doing right now is right, and you can trust me that what I'm going to do in the future is going to be right and that I am in control. Now, friends, with that in mind, I'd be very frank with you. Let me ask the question. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can bring a charge against us if we've trusted Christ? And all things do work together for good to those that love God, to those called according to his purpose. Now, He says, therefore, to this man Habakkuk, I will take care of the Babylonians in time. Now, he puts down the basis on which he's going to judge them. God says, you just give me time, and I'll take care of them. I'm going to use them to judge my people. But then I will judge them, and I will judge them on a righteous, holy basis and I will be justified in what I do. Now, we have given to us here five woes. 
And this is just about as systematic and as orderly as anything that you'll find in the Scripture. And I'm told that the next two chapters, this chapter and chapter 3, are like a psalm. Each one of them is a psalm. In fact, it could be set to music. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 5, he says, "'Yea, also, because he transgressed by wine, he's a proud man.'" Now, he's talking about the Babylonians. And they, at this moment, are not the great nation that they became later on at the time of Daniel. Now, his first charge is they transgress by wine. And the Babylonian, he's a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as Sheol, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto himself all nations, and heapeth unto himself all peoples. Now, Babylon became the first great world power. That was what they were after, and that's what they became. That's been the philosophy of great many nations of the world. They've worked on that basis, that they could rule the world. And I'm afraid that after World War II, we got that insane notion also. And we stuck our nose into several countries where we should have kept our nose at home, where it belonged. But nevertheless, this has been the fallacy of the nations of the world. And this was the fallacy of Babylon. They had a philosophy that they intended to rule the world. They felt they were capable of of doing it. They were lifted up by pride. And they were guilty of this sin of drunkenness. Now, I've had this up several times before. It was in Amos and Joel, and it was in Nahum. And now here again, it's in Habakkuk that this is what brings nations down. Nahum makes it clear that it was drunkenness that brought Assyria down. It was drunkenness that caused God to send the northern kingdom into captivity. Now, Habakkuk says it's drunkenness that will cause God to destroy, absolutely destroy the great Babylonian kingdom. In other words, drunkenness works out its own destruction, when they become a nation of drunkards. Now, that is the thing that characterized Babylon. And if you would read the fifth chapter of Daniel, we were there not too long ago. You remember Belshazzar made a feast, and that was the night that Babylon fell. Why? They were drunk. It was a night of revelry and drunkenness. They felt perfectly safe. That is the thing that brought Rome down. I took a group of people into a place many of them said they'd never even heard of before, Ostia, that's down about 15 miles from Rome. It's on the seacoast, down by the Tiber River. That was the playground of the Romans. And the ruins there reveal that the Romans gave themselves over there to revelry and drunkenness, was the important thing that brought them down. It was the main thing. And this is the thing that'll destroy any people. It'll destroy our nation today. I have been in 
hotels and motels and inns across this country, and most of them depend for their existence on conventions. And a convention, as I have observed them, is a time of great revelry and drinking. I've been in Dallas when there were two conventions going on at one time where we stayed. And on the way to the service in the evening, we passed two big rooms filled with a cocktail party. Now, these are two reputable companies in this country today. But that's the way they carry on their business. Now, how long will this nation last like that today with 10 million alcoholics, 50% of our accidents caused by drunkenness? How long can a nation exist like that? Now, God says that is your problem. Your drunkenness, it's led to pride and made you like Sheol, You want to gobble up everything. You remember back in the book of Proverbs, in verse 15 of chapter 30, the horse leash hath two daughters crying, Give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not. It's enough. The grave, and that's Sheol, by the way, and the barren womb, and the earth is filled with water. So that here, he uses that same expression that as Habakkuk does, who enlargeth his desire as Sheol, never satisfied, keep expanding their borders, keep moving out, and never, never satisfied. Today, we are living in a country where each year, business must be a little bit better than the year before. And churches have caught up in that today. I'm not sure but what those of us in radio are caught up in it. We want this year to be better than the year before. What kind of a thing is this that's going on today? The church must take in more members this year than it did last year. The budget must be bigger than last year. And if it's not, believe me, we're failing. That is, we think we're failing like Sheol, like the grave that never has enough. And today... That is the thing that drives many of us on, and this is the thing that brought Babylon down. God says, I'll judge them for these things. Now he spells out five of these woes specifically. Will you listen to him? Verse 6, now, "...shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. And that apparently has to do with signing a pledge. It's one thing to buy property and pay for it. It's another thing to take it by force. And this first woe is a taunting proverb against Babylon because they were seizing by force that which was not theirs as a nation. And this is God's taunting proverb against this nation for wanting more and taking that which does not belong to them. You see, God has made it today that man by the sweat of his brow is going to make his living. And friends, if you're not earning your living by the sweat of your brow, somebody else is doing it for you because you can't get it any other way. And Babylon's way was 
that they wanted somebody else to do the work, and they by force would take it. And that is the first woe. God says, I'll judge you for that. And he wants you to know that he was just and righteous when he did it also. Verse 7, "...shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booty unto them?" God says, don't you know that whatsoever a man sows that, he's going to reap. You're going to take it away from somebody else. Somebody's going to take it away from you. In fact, the same crowd, the media Persians, became a great nation also. And then they took Babylon. Gabrias, by subtlety, that night channeled the Euphrates River back out of the canal through which it was flowing through the city. And then his army flowed into the city, and he destroyed it. And again, you have this awful thing. You know, man is bloodthirsty. Man is covetous. God says, verse 8, "...because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and all that dwell therein." And that, by the way, brings us to the next woe that we have here. Verse 9, "...woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness." Now, I think that you can covet the best gifts. I think that a believer ought to have a desire to want to please God. That kind of covetousness. But this is an evil covetousness. That is, covets that which doesn't belong to him covets his neighbor's property, his neighbor's wife, his neighbor's wealth, covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast plotted shame to thy house by cutting off many peoples, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Remember the Lord Jesus when they tried to get him, the religious rulers did, tried to get him to quiet that crowd that had come from Galilee that was singing Hosanna to the Messiah. Why, he said, why, if these would keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. And in other words, this is something that's going to get out. You can be sure of that. That brings us to the third woe, verse 12. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establish a city by iniquity. And this has to do with murder, and pillage, and slaughter, and violence. That is the method that Babylon used of destruction. And it's the method of warfare, of course. You know, mankind, if you get off and look back at him in his history you have to come to the conclusion that he must be insane, the way that he's lived on this earth, the way that he acts. And actually, he is insane, insane with sin, a sinful nature, so that he can't even direct his paths. So even that which he thinks is right, and there's never been a war fought that they didn't think it was right, and Always he comes to the conclusion that he's doing the righteous and the right thing. May I say to you, this is God's condemnation of Babylon. 
But you can stretch that out and bring it up to date and put it down on any modern nation you want to, and it'll fit just like a glove. Now, our time is up, but we're going to finish this chapter next time and probably move into the third chapter. This is another rich section of the Word of God. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now we're in the second chapter of Habakkuk. We did not conclude it last time. And again, may I say that all of it originates when this man Habakkuk, with his questions, he went to the watchtower, and there God spoke to him and gave him this tremendous verse that God is working with humanity today on a great plan and purpose that comes out of eternity and reaches into eternity, and that God had a plan by which he was going to save sinful man. And that was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, before God brought anything physical into existence. And man was not even in existence. God had already determined that he's going to work out a plan for that man. And so today, humanity is moving through this little world on which we live. Apparently, mankind's been on this earth several thousand years. How many thousand, I don't know. And I've read many books on this. I'm convinced the scientists don't know either, but they write a great many books on it. And that's all right, but my guess, or your guess, is probably as good as theirs. But man's been around here not too long. And he's moving in two directions. And that's the thing Habakkuk saw. There was that man by pride, lifted up in his own strength, attempted to get all he could down here on this earth. He rejected God in rebellion against God, no capacity for him. And that way leads to destruction. There is another way, and that way is the just shall live by faith. Faith in a Savior that died upon the cross. Now, when men pursue that other way, these are the things that God will judge him for. Not so much for taking the wrong way, but that way led to certain woes that pertain to the nation of Babylon. And this is the reason that God would judge them. The first woe we saw last time it was in verse 6 that this nation would seize by force that which was not his at all, did not belong to them. And they took it by force. God will judge them for that. And then that was the second woe, and that was covetousness. They coveted everything, and God will judge for that. The third woe was that what they got, they got by murder by slaughter, by violence, by brutality. And God would judge them for that. And that's in verse 12. Then we see that the fourth woe is drunkenness and immorality. I want to read that again today because that's actually where we are beginning. And I want to read verse 13 first. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people's shall labor only for fire, and the nations shall weary themselves for nothing. 
Just think of the futile efforts that have been made by the great nations of the past. Instead of building up, they've spent more time in tearing down. You look at, for instance, Greece and those marvelous, wonderful pieces of architecture and statues and art and literature. But actually, the Greeks spent more time in destruction. That man, Alexander the Great, as he crossed over into Asia, and he didn't do anything in the world but destroy one city after another. Well, one great civilization after another. That was the thing that marked him out. That's the thing that marked out Babylon, that is the specific nation that is mentioned here. Then we come here to verse 15, and he says, "'Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink.'" And this is actually a little different than the drunkenness that he mentioned back in verse 5. For there, God says that he transgresseth by wine. But the tragic thing about it is that "'Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy wineskin to him, makest him drunk also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness.'" In other words, liquor leads to gross immorality. It leads to the breaking down of morals. It leads men to commit sins they probably otherwise would not. Dishonesty, many of those. Now, today this is an alarming thing in many of the large corporations. I'm told by a man here in Southern California who holds a very responsible position in a very large corporation and another man that I know connected with one of the big banks out here with all their branches. He says that one of the things that they do, and the other man says they do the same thing in their corporation, they have employed certain men. They're generally officials, and their business is to watch for a man that's beginning to drink too much. They have many ways of telling that. Actually, they even talk to the wife. They even have him followed at night if certain things begin to show in his work, late for work, or doesn't even show up for work. And these companies, because some of these men are brilliant men, good men, they go to them and face them with this problem of drink that they have and offer to help them, assist them, give it up. And may I say to you, if you want to know how crazy this is, these same companies have cocktail parties to get men drunk, and then they have a process of drying them out. That's sort of like running a hospital by bringing in well people and giving them disease germs and then operate on them or treat them for the disease that they get. That looks like man's become sort of a guinea pig in this crazy world in which we've moved today with so many illogical things being done even by large corporations. Now, that's the condemnation that is here that you're making drunkards. Not only are you drinking, but you're making drunkards. 
fruits out of these. And it's quite interesting, again, may I refer to an authority of a man and his wife who are working in the drug culture. And they say that so many of these young people come out of homes where cocktails are served. If mom and papa are going to have cocktails, live their life, why can't Junior have his drugs? By the way, I'd like to have a good answer for that because I've been asked that question, and I've been asked that question by Junior, and I don't have an answer for it because I think mom and papa are responsible for his going into this drug culture And I believe that back of drugs has been drunkenness. That is the thing that has brought it to pass in our nation as it is today. Now, these are things that are not being said today. I recognize that they're not being said on radio. And I know this doesn't make you very popular, but I don't think Habakkuk was too popular, and certainly not down in Babylon when this word percolated down there and found out that God condemns drunkenness, and God condemns making drunkards out of others. Now, will you listen? It leads to gross immorality. Verse 16, Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy shame come upon thee. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. It leads to gross immorality. Drunkenness leads to divorce. It leads to the breaking up of homes. It leads to a life of sin. Now, may I say this? I have come to the place in my own life that I have really lost respect for men in government today when it's a well-known fact that these fellows talk so big about honesty and they talk so big and brave about they're going to help the poor while it's known that many of them are actually alcoholics and many of them are drinking like fish today. May I say to you, how can we have respect for government when this sort of thing is all out in the open, and yet they ask us to respect them, look up to them, and give them our support. May I say to you, it makes you bow your head in shame of what's happening in this great land of ours. And Habakkuk spelled it out here, my friend, years ago. And God says, this is the reason I brought Babylon down because of these sins. Now, let me keep reading here. Verse 17, For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which make them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. Violence is another one of the fruits that come from drunkenness, You see, all kinds of immorality spring from drunkenness. The drug culture came out of it, and this gross immorality today, divorce, all of these sins that are abroad in our land have come 
out of this thing here. Now notice verse 18. What profiteth the carved image that its maker hath engraved it, the melted image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth in it to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all within it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, what you have here is the fifth woe. And this is God's condemnation of the greatest sin of all. Actually, drunkenness is not the greatest sin. The greatest sin is idolatry, false religion, turning to an idol instead of turning to God. And this is the thing that was the worst sin of all. You see, we called attention when we were in Isaiah. Actually, I think I first called attention to it in the book of Judges, because there is put down there a great principle of government. And also in Isaiah, that principle is stated clearly. And all of these subsequent prophets, they just bear out what had already been said before and carry out this principle. There are three steps in the downfall of a nation. First of all, there is religious apostasy. The second step is moral awfulness. And the third step is political anarchy. Those are the three steps by which nations pass off the stage of human history. That's been the way that it has moved. You see, the primary problem was never political anarchy. The primary problem never was moral awfulness. Now, as bad as these are, the root trouble, the root problem goes back to that which is religious or spiritual apostasy, a turning away from the living and true God. That is the very interesting thing that's happened to this nation of ours today. There are a man, I'm not the only one that's saying this by any means. Dr. Seagrave Singer, he was professor of history over in Salisbury, North Carolina. He made this statement, The American dream is vanishing in the midst of terrifying realities and visible signs of decadence in our contemporary society. And again, Clinton Rosita, professor of American institutions at Cornell, he said, in our youth, we had a profound sense of national purpose, which we lost over the years of our rise to glory. And James Reston, and I don't think anybody ever called him a conservative, he says in public, speaking of Washington today, in public, they talk about how optimistic and wonderful the future is. But the private conversations of thoughtful men here in Washington are quite different. For the first time since the war, one begins to hear of doubts that moral men are capable of solving 
or even controlling the political, social, and economic problems life has placed before them. This is the picture, and this is the story of the downfall of nations, and that's the thing that alarms me, because this great principle that this man, Habakkuk, has restated again in the Word of God, and it was fulfilled in this nation of Babylon. It begins in idolatry. It begins in turning away from the living and true God. Now, as we have said in this series, when we say today that idolatry has gone out of style and no one today is bowing down before an idol in this country, and of course that's not true. Many a man is worshiping the almighty dollar. Many a man today worships sex. Many a man worships pleasure. Many a woman has given her virtue in order to become a famous star, in order to be promoted. May I say to you, anything that you give yourself to, anything that takes all of your time, all of your energy, all of you, that which you worship, that, my friend, is your God. That's your idol. And that is the thing that God condemns. God says he's a jealous God. God says, I made you, I created you, and I've redeemed you, and I want you. And when a man turns his back on God, he's doing the worst thing that any man can possibly do. Now he concludes this by saying, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, personally, I think that looks to the future when he will come to the earth, the Lord Jesus, and when he is in his temple down here. The whole earth is going to be silent before him. All of this noise today, all of this clamor, all of this protest, all of this confusion is going to disappear. But there's also true that today the reason that we are having all of our problems and difficulties down here is that he is yonder today in heaven and the Lord is in his temple And if man would recognize him and bow before him and recognize God, probably it would be a wonderful thing if we could just have a week of silence. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone in Washington would keep his mouth shut for a week? Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us preachers talking on radio would keep our mouths shut for a week? That would be a good thing. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if all that are doing so much talking would keep quiet and wait before Almighty God today. May I say to you, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. But the second psalm opens with a question mark. Why? It is a question like you have in this book here of Habakkuk. A question of why, and that question is, why do the nations rage and the people imagine an empty thing? Why all the clamor? Why all the protests? Far from God. They've forgotten that God today is in his heaven. But Browning was wrong when he said, God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. God's in his heaven 
But all's wrong with the world because man is not rightly related to God. Our problem today is actually not a human problem. It's a divine problem. The problem of man's relationship to God. That is the only alternative, the only way out. The just shall live by faith. Now, friends, as we come here to the third chapter of Habakkuk, we've come to a tremendous change that has taken place in the life of this man Habakkuk. We are going to see, when we get to the end of this chapter, that this man has made a right about face. For this little book, it opens in gloom. He has a question mark for a brain. He's questioning God. And then it closes in glory with a great exclamation point. It is a high note of praise, and you will not find any more confident faith than is expressed in the last part of this chapter and, of course, the last part of the book. Now, let me say, first of all, that this is called, and I read now verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigianoth. This word Shigianoth, it has to do with music. Some think it would be some sort of a musical point that would indicate to a musician the way it's to be played. Some think it's a musical instrument. We had this when we were in the book of Psalms, you will recall. And it has to do with music. So the prayer is one that is musical, actually. It's Hebrew poetry, and it is a song, a song of high praise. And it opens like this. And it says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. What a change has taken place in the life of this man, Habakkuk. His glorious experience on the watchtower and patient waiting for an answer from God has brought him into a place of real faith. Not only that, it's opened his eyes to something he was not conscious of before. And so this is a song. I would call it a folk song. It's a happy song. It is to be played with a stringed instrument. And we gather that, by the way, if you turn to the very end of this chapter, the end of the book also, read the last sentence. It says, "...to the chief singer..." on my stringed instruments. Now, I have a notion that this is a little note that Habakkuk put in here, how it's to be sung. And he tells the soloist that he's to get with it, that this is something that is to be sung with a stringed instrument. And today, aren't most of the folk songs sung with stringed instruments? You and I may not like some of these stringed instruments, and what's coming off of them today, but nevertheless, they are used for folk singing. And apparently that's what we have here, but it's on a much higher plane than 
that which I hear today, and when I say I hear it, I don't listen to it, I just hear it. It's amazing that we were living in a day when we hear so much about freedom of speech. What about freedom of hearing? I'd like to have my ears protected today. Just because some vile person insists on having freedom of speech, my ears are offended because I have to listen to singing that I don't care for, and I have to hear at least a segment of a dirty song. At least it's my judgment it's a dirty song. But he's got to have his liberty. We today don't consider that we ought to have a little freedom of our ears and not have to listen to a lot of the junk that is being passed around today. And it's the same thing that you find over in the criminal court. The criminal must have his rights. He must be protected. And over in Dallas, Texas, where I was, they had so many holdups that they put police in some of these small groceries with sawed-off shotguns to shoot these men that were killing the storekeepers. But that was too brutal and cruel because the criminal must be protected. I mean, if he's going to hold up the place, you've got to protect him. You just can't shoot him down, give him a chance. But anyway, they withdrew the police. When I was over there, there was a cry that something be done about it. In fact, these grocerymen, small store owners, were organizing vigilante groups in order that they might have some protection, because, you see, they were protecting the criminal. But every night, there'd be a groceryman somewhere in the Dallas area shot down. One straight week that we were there, each night. You see, when you begin to protect the wrong group, actually, it brings anarchy in our government today and anarchy in the nation. We've got the thing, I think, backwards. But this is a wonderful song. And I don't think this would be offensive to anybody's ears. A beautiful, lovely song, and it's a prayer. Now, he said, I've heard thy speech. In other words, God has answered him. God said to him, now look here, Habakkuk, I want you to stay in your watchtower, and I want you to walk by faith. I want you to trust me Now, you think that I'm not doing anything about the sins of my people. Well, I am. I'm preparing a nation by the name of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they are going to be used, as I used the Assyrians before them with the northern kingdom. They are the rod of my anger. But when I'm through with them, I'm going to judge them, and I'll judge them on a righteous basis. And then he spelled out those five woes that we have seen the past two times. And these are great national sins that brought that nation down. And God was moving to bring the nation down. Now, the very interesting thing is that here, this man of Bacchus now reverses himself. He says, I've heard your speech and I'm afraid. What's he afraid of? Well, he thought God wasn't doing anything. Now he's afraid the Lord's doing too much. Will you notice what he says here? I've heard thy speech and was afraid. 
O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. He says, Lord, I didn't think you were working. I didn't think that you were doing anything. But I see now that you're moving in judgment. And since you're moving in judgment, I want you to remember mercy. Remember to be merciful even to the Chaldeans and be merciful to your people. Before he was calling down fire from heaven upon not only his own nation that had departed from God, but also upon the Chaldeans. And now he's saying, Lord, don't forget, be merciful. Well, God is merciful, and God is gracious, and he's not willing that any should perish. And it does look like today he's not doing anything. But if today you and I could ascend to the watchtower of Habakkuk, and you and I could learn that the just shall live by his faith, and you and I could have a living faith in God today and See what's moving back of the scene. See the wheels that are turning today. You and I would, I think, be as surprised as this man. And I'm not sure but what we'd cry out to God for mercy. I'm afraid a great many Christians today have thrown up their hands about the condition of our own country, and they've just given up. We all feel that way, don't we? But may I say to you, God, I think, is moving, moving today in judgment. But somebody needs to just cry out to him and say, Oh, Lord, in wrath, as you're moving in judgment, don't forget to be merciful to us. We need your mercy. This great nation of ours needs the mercy of God today in our arrogance. And since World War II, we've been on an eager trip. We have really had a flight of pride, being the greatest nation in the world. And now even our little gas buggies were slowed down, and we feel like that today we're almost helpless. And what would we do in the time of a major crisis? Suppose we would be attacked from the outside. How much gasoline would there be? How much of other chemicals that are so needed? How long could we really last? Don't forget, God is moving today, and I think in judgment. But we need to ask him to be merciful to us. And you remember Shakespeare has Portia, I think it is, in The Merchant of Venice, say the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. And we need that. We talk about showers of blessings What we need today is showers of mercy from Almighty God. And what a reversal in the thinking of this man. At first he says, you're not doing anything, O Lord. Why don't you do something? Why are you letting them get by with it? Now God's let him see that he is doing something, and he cries out for the mercy of God. And today, if we really knew how much God is moving in judgment, I'm of the opinion that it would bring America to her knees before Almighty God. Now, let's move down into this very wonderful prayer that we have here. And the prayer actually is a recital 
of what God has done in the past history of these people. And in view of the fact that he has done it in the past, he intends to do it in the future again. That is the thought that is shared. You can depend upon God because of what he has done, that he will continue to do it. Paul gave that to us as believers. In fact, it's my life verse. And it goes something like this. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, my friend, has God begun a good work in you? Are you confident? Well, I think you can be. He's brought you up to this present moment, has he not? And he has begun a good work in you. Well, you can be sure he will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ, until he takes you out of this world, and then you'll be in his likeness. That's a confidence. And that is the great confidence of this psalm here. Now, I personally think it's divided into three very definite sections here. And in my notes, I have divided it actually into three sections. The first two verses, you have the prayer of the prophet. And then you have the program of God, beginning with verse 3 down through 16. Then you have the position of the prophet, verses 17 through 19. And I think this gives a division of it. Now, in this program of God, I believe three men are in the background here. However, none of them are mentioned by name, because it is not the psalm of what any man has done, but it's a psalm of what God has done through man. And the men are not mentioned by name. Now, a great many see only two here. I believe that you have in verses 3 through 6, Abraham. And then in verses 7 through 10, you have Moses. And then beginning with verse 11, Joshua is mentioned down through verse 15. I believe that's the way that you would divide this particular section here. But many feel that actually Moses is mentioned here in this first section. Now let me read, beginning with verse 3. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, these two places are cities in Edom, and they have to do a great many things with the children of Israel as they came up out of the land of Egypt. But actually, Abraham went down there first. You'll recall that Abraham went down to Egypt. And then you have this very interesting word here, Selah. And that is a word that we found in the Psalms. That again would indicate that this is a psalm. There is a different viewpoint as to what Selah means. Some of them think that it's a pause in the music, a breathing place. Some think that it means that this is where the drums come in and the music reaches a high crescendo. 
Well, I'm not very musical. Well, in fact, I'm not musical at all. And to me, I think of it as stop, look, and listen. That was on all railroad crossings when I was a boy. It was a cross put up there, and it says, stop, look, and listen. And that is what I think Selah means here. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now set up and take notice, God said. Be sure and hear this. And the singer is to really come down here, and the drummer, I want him to just pound the drums when we get here. Selah. And now this is to call the attention to... Now, whether it's Abraham or whether it's Moses, actually, I think it's unimportant because God was present with both of these men. And we have a marvelous, wonderful picture here of the glory of God. It says, "...his glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise." Well, that hasn't taken place quite yet. But certainly as far as Abraham was concerned and the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, at first there was praise in their hearts. Of course, they became complainers and whiners the rest of the journey. But the glory of the Lord covered the heavens. And today we need to be impressed as believers of the glory of our God, how majestic, how wonderful, how powerful, how gracious He is. How wonderful is our God. Now, let me read on. And His brightness was like the light. He had horns coming out of His hand. And these are spokes of light. As you know, when the sun comes up, rays of light shoot up. That's the picture of the approach of Him. I think when the Lord Jesus comes back to take his church, that the glory will be present. That wasn't when he was born in Bethlehem. And when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom, his brightness was like the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. These are rays of light. And there was the hiding of his power. In other words, the glory of God so covered him that you couldn't see him. The very... Glory of God shuts out the glory of God, if you please. Oh, the majesty of his person. And that is something today that believers need to recognize and respect. Now it says, "...before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet." Now that could apply to the time of Moses in Egypt, the plagues, but it also could apply to Abraham, you see, who went down to Egypt because there was a famine. There was the pestilence in the land. Now, will you notice verse 6? He stood and measured the earth. And you remember, he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And God measured it out to him. And God has made the statement that he has lined up the nations of the world according to the way he gave this land to Abraham. And that's an amazing thing, by the way. It says, "...he stood and measured the earth, he beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting." All the ways of our God are past finding out. Then we move down, verse 7, 
And Moses is definitely before us here. In fact, there are many that feel like Moses is before us from verse 3 on. But that, I think, is merely a minor detail. The important thing is, whether it's Abraham or Moses, God was moving. But it's certainly Moses here at verse 7. He says, I saw the tents of Cushan, and that is Ethiopia, in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now, you will recall that this man Moses went down into the land of Midian, and it is believed now by some scholars that Moses, when he was Pharaoh's daughter's son, that is, an adopted son, that he probably led a campaign into Ethiopia. But that, of course, is not really a matter of record, but the belief of some scholars today. Now let me move on down here, verse 8. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? In other words, God opened up the rivers for them. You will recall how they crossed the Jordan River, how they crossed actually the Red Sea. And that is what is in mind here because he goes on and says, "...was thy wrath against the sea." that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. This is highly figurative, beautiful language, by the way, and it's Hebrew poetry, and it speaks of the fact that God was not angry with the rivers because they blocked the way. He just merely opened up the Red Sea and let them cross over, as he did later the Jordan River. And now I read verse 9, "...thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word." And this is Selah. In other words, God was making good his covenant, his promise to his people. And believe me, Selah here could really mean you need to pound those drums again, drummer, because this is something to wake them up and cause them to listen to what God has to say. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. And did you ever stop to think of this earth today as being sliced? God sliced it with rivers. The rivers are like a great slice down through the earth. What a highly figurative picture, but what an accurate picture, by the way, that's given to us here. Now will you notice verse 10. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted up its hands on high. Now, you will recall that when Moses went up and got the law on the top of Mount Sinai, there at the giving of the law, it trembled, and the children of Israel were so frightened that they actually didn't want to come near. They didn't want God to speak to them at all. They were absolutely frightened at that time. And Moses, you'll recall, went up and got the Ten Commandments. Then he came down from there. Now, that's the picture of how Moses delivered the children of Israel. You have God making a covenant with Abraham. He made it good. Now God has made a covenant with Moses, and he made it good that he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, and he delivered them out of the land of Egypt. Now we come in verse 11 
to Joshua. And I think that it's quite definite that Joshua's in the background here. But as we said last time, the names of these men are not mentioned here at all, because actually it's the acts of God that we're dealing with. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. And that immediately would identify Joshua. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. In other words, the very shining of the sun was like a glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the nations in anger. In other words, when God put his people in that land, he put them in there and removed them because of the sin in their lives. The Amorites that occupied the section in which Jericho was located, they were eaten up with venereal disease. And God moved them out of that land because they would have infected the entire human family at that time because it was almost a plague among the peoples in those days. Now, we read here at verse 13, "...thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed." And there's been a question of whether thine anointed refers to Israel are to the Messiah. And personally, I think it means the Messiah here, even for salvation with thine anointed, because it's the Lord Jesus that is the Savior, as well as the anointed one, the Messiah. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by laying bare the foundation unto the neck, Selah. And when the anointed one is mentioned here, why, the music is to reach the highest crescendo. This is, I guess, what they call in music fortissimo. This is way up yonder. This is where you need a good soprano and a good basso. And my, I tell you, this is praise unto God for the salvation that he wrought for these people. He delivered them out of Egypt under Moses. He brought them into the land through Joshua. But it was all the acts of God. And it was God making good his promise to them. And this was his salvation to them. Now, will you notice verse 15? Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. And the Jordan River, you remember, was open at the time Joshua brought them into the land. Now you have the reaction here of the prophet. And I could only wish that I could do justice to the remainder of this little book and of this chapter here. I know that I'm totally inadequate to present it as it should be presented to you. This is one of the great passages of the Word of God. I wish that Somehow or another, I could convey to your heart today something of the grandeur and the glory that you have in this section here. Now, let me read it all first and then come back. Verse 16, "...when I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself." that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up unto the people 
he will invade them with his troops. Now listen to this. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no food. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he'll make me walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. This man now gives us his own personal experience here at the end. He opened, by the way, with his own personal experience. Now, we have here the position of the prophet, and he tells about his own physical reaction to all of this. Did you ever have that sinking feeling in the pit of your tummy when some crisis faces you or you come to some place in life where there is a great emergency? Well, that was the experience of this man. He says, when I heard my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. And have you been so frightened that you could not speak audibly? I'm sure most of us have had an experience like that. I had that kind of an experience as a young man. I was going to see a young lady, and apparently some peeping Tom, after the girl next door had a young man that was keeping company with her, and after we would leave, apparently this peeping Tom found a place where he could get on the porch, and he could look into both bedrooms on both sides where these girls, and they were sisters, in both places, two girls in both places. And he apparently had been doing that for some time. And this night, why well, they thought he passed by the window next door. And so they called where I was, and I very foolishly, the girl brought me her father's pistol, and I walked to the alley in the back. I should have stayed out of that backyard. But there was a big high fence there. And I was walking back, and I was getting ready to tell them there was no use being afraid, wasn't anybody there. And all of a sudden, a form appeared right above me on that fence. That fellow could have jumped down on me, but he was so frightened at seeing me, he didn't budge, and I didn't either. I tried to raise the gun to shoot, and I thank God I was not able to do it. I was so frightened. And I tried to talk, and I couldn't say anything. And the girl called her father and said, he's choking Vernon out there. <laughs> and he wasn't choking me. I was scared to death. I just couldn't open my voice. And instead of being a hero like I intended to be that evening, I turned out to be a very sorry one. And the fellow, whoever he was, the peep at Tom, dropped down on the other side and started running. And I put the gun on the fence. I couldn't hold it steady. And I shot at him twice, but he was perfectly safe. I don't think I got, in fact, in his neighborhood at all. But the important thing is that I use that to let you know that I know what it is to be frightened, friends, and the voice to quiver. 
And then he says, rottenness entered into my bones. That means he couldn't stand up. I had to hold on to something. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. In other words, he saw that God was going to move in judgment. And he knew that it would mean hard and difficult times. And he said, regardless of what happens, he says, though the fig tree shall not blossom, there'll be no fruit in the vines, there'll be no grapes, there'll be nothing. Now, I want you to see this because this is so important for us to see, friends, especially in these days in which we live, and so much is being promised today. He said, in spite of all that, I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will joy in the God of my salvation. I get literature. I've thrown something here in the wastebasket today. And it is a magazine that comes from a so-called Christian work that tells about all the things that you can get through prayer, that God will make you prosperous. He'll give you health. He'll give you everything. My friend, may I say to you, God is not a glorified Santa Claus. Our God today is moving in a very definite way. And if you want the answer to your problems, and the answer is here, and that answer, by the way, is just simply this, God is the answer to our problem. This man came to God at the beginning, and he says, Why are you doing certain things? Why are you permitting me to see evil? Why don't you move? And then he brought him to the watchtower. And he let him see what he was doing. And now this man says, I'm going to walk by faith with God. He's the answer to your problem today. I don't know who you are or what your problem is, but my friend, God is the answer. You can have faith and confidence in him, and God has a purpose in your life. Every one of you, God intends to carry through that. You can trust Christ today. And when you trust him, he'll begin to work in you. And he wants to conform you to his image. It's God's intention to make you like Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, regardless of the big words there, God's eternal purpose with you is to make you like Jesus Christ. And he says again in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. My friend, God has a purpose for you. I don't care who you are. And for anybody to say that somebody else has a greater purpose in life than you have is entirely wrong. You are as important in God's plan and purpose today as any individual that's ever lived on this earth or ever will live on this earth. He wants to make you like Christ. And again in 1 Corinthians 15:47, the first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That's the Lord Jesus. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. 
And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne also the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We are down here in these human bodies that have been taken actually out of the dirt. And God has made us human beings. But that's not his final purpose. We are earthy. He wants us to be heavenly. And that is his goal for us. Suppose that you had lived in the days of Michelangelo and you lived next door to him. One day you visited his studio and there was a rough piece of stone. It was dirty and it was polluted because it had come out of a dark and damp place out of the quarry. And it was a hard piece of marble. It was crude, hard, unyielding, cold, and unlovely and unsightly. And you come back in six months. And what has happened? Well, there's a statue of David. There's the archangel Michael. May I say to you, today God has a purpose for you and me today. We are earthy, but he has a heavenly purpose. You see, the ideal of the artist, that's the Holy Spirit to conform us. And the chisel is the discipline of the Lord, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. We've seen that. And the hammer is the word of God. And we can say today with a psalmist in Psalm 17:15, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Oh, my friend, God is the answer to your questions. God is the answer to your problem. And therefore, I don't care who you are or where you are today, you can rejoice in him and you can rejoice in his salvation and say with this man who was such a pessimist at the beginning, he now says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The book opens in gloom. It closes in glory. It opens with a question mark. It closes with a mighty exclamation point, and it ends with this wonderful song. May you and I be encouraged today by the Word of God. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.